You are listening to America's home for stadium news and information. Stadiums USA Radio. Once again, with your ticket to the action, here's Bill Hazen. This year's Major League Baseball playoffs may have more intrigue than usual, with the Chicago Cubs breaking into the playoffs with the best record in baseball. We'll go inside the press box with former Cubs beat reporter Jeff Porva, who compares Wrigley Field to other stadiums in the majors. There's a battle going on for your attention at stadiums. We'll learn about the evolution of the stadium experience from writer David Zweig, who discusses ballpark distractions and shares his visit to the brand new Mercedes-Benz Stadium under construction in Atlanta. The late Will Chamberlain once quipped that nobody cheers for Goliath, but that changed the night that the Big Dipper scored 100 points in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Writer John Finger takes us to the arena where it all happened back in 1962. And Stadiums USA's Mark Madoran tells us just what is buried underneath Memorial Stadium in Champaign. But first, the stadiums beat with Jeff Schmidt. Jeff? Well, Hurricane Matthew is the big story across the southeast, and a number of stadiums are impacted by the track of that storm. Last night's Tulane Central Florida game in Orlando was postponed until November. Games that are not called off or moved to other locations will certainly be impacted by the weather, including the National League Divisional Series in Washington, D.C., and the Redskins-Ravens contest in Baltimore, where wind and rain could be a factor. Nevada lawmakers are heading to Carson City next week, participating in a special session considering financing for a new Las Vegas football stadium. Debate will focus on whether or not to raise hotel room taxes to pay for $750 million of a proposed $1.9 billion dome structure. At a stadium rally in Sin City this week, Hall of Famer Howie Long was on hand. This to me is a win-win. Just imagine a state-of-the-art stadium here in Las Vegas bringing Super Bowls, eight regular season games, three preseason games, potentially playoff games. There are just so many possibilities. Raiders and UNLV cheerleaders were also part of that rally held just outside the Thomas and Max Center. Well, Baltimore's Memorial Stadium will forever live in the hearts and minds of Orioles and Colts fans. And a woodworker from Baltimore is keeping that stadium spirit alive in the form of a miniature replica project. It's pretty impressive. 80-year-old John Swope's project features images of fans and tiny figures representing the Orioles' glory days. That's uh, Jim Palmer's pitching. Dempsey is catching. Boo Pals on first base. Brooke Robinson's on third. Ripkins in shortstop. That's John speaking with the Baltimore Sun. John also included the famous flag atop the left field bleachers, where in 1966, Frank Robinson became the only player to hit a fair ball out of the ballpark. Pretty cool. And how old were you when you attended your first ball game? 97-year-old Anna Burge from Hutchinson, Minnesota, a lifelong Vikings fan, will be attending her first game this Sunday. Anna told ESPN she's just a little excited. Seeing the stadium, the new stadium way before, 
and I'm finally going to get to see a game in there. It's a dream come true. Twelve of Anna's family will escort her to see the undefeated Vikes against Houston. Bill, that's the very latest. That is neat, Jeff. Thank you. I was driving around recently in Chicago, and I saw a lady who was wearing a sweatshirt, which is very appropriate this year. On the front of it, it said, Chicago Cubs baseball, and it had the Cubs logo on it. And then she turned around and it said, World Champions 1908. What else do you need to know about Cubs baseball? We're going to dig into the experience this year, and particularly with a focus on Wrigley Field. For that, we're going to turn to a man who, for a long time, was the Chicago Cubs beat writer for the Daily Southtown. His name is Jeff Vorva. You've spent a lot of time in Wrigley Field. You know it very well. Obviously, that's warts and all, but a lot of those warts are starting to disappear as the park is being renovated. Let's start with the press box. You spent an awful lot of time in there. I get the impression that it was fairly tight, as seems to be the case with a lot of stuff at Wrigley Field due to the nature they renovated it, uh, that uh, space was tight, but there was enough room for everybody. Is that a pretty fair assessment? There generally is enough room for everybody during the regular season. Uh, during the playoffs, they have to do alternate seating, and sometimes that's outside. Um, mm-hmm. I was lucky enough with the Southtown for 10 years to have a front row seat in the press box, which I, I don't romanticize really feel as much as a lot of people do, but I always got a kick out of uh, having my uh, laptop computer in front of me and thinking, this is my workplace. And I just look a little bit to the left of the computer or a little bit to the right of the computer, and there's Wrigley Field in its uh, in its <laughs> glory. You're looking out at the infield, you're looking out at the outfield. That's my romanticism for, for the park. It was just really cool saying, oh, wow, this is my workplace. There are people stuck in traffic right now, to and from work, and I'm sitting here. And, uh, you know, you, a lot of times this was like about 3 or 4 o'clock, long before the game starts to, for the night games. I'm thinking to myself, there's people swearing in traffic, getting ready to get home, maybe to watch the game. And, and, and here I am, you know, in an empty ballpark watching batting practice from a press box. You know, nothing nothing can beat that. The park, it has gone through a lot of re- renovations now, but when I worked it, it was it was a, a, a lovable dump. <laughs> you know, it was very hard for the media to get to and from where they needed to go compared to like some of the newer parks and the parks we were used to when we went to on the, on the road, such as Houston and Pittsburgh and places like that, where there's elevators and stuff that get you up and down and quickly. You know, since on deadline, you've got an 11 o'clock deadline and the game ends at 1030 and you've got to go downstairs and upstairs. You kind of like to get there quickly and yeah, really wasn't like that. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about uh, some other parks that you've had a chance to visit. I don't know how much you actually traveled with the team, perhaps some, perhaps all the way. Uh, but I know you had a chance to compare Wrigley, perhaps, to some other ballparks, at least here in the Midwest or perhaps elsewhere. How does Wrigley compare with some of the other baseball parks that you visited? Uh, it's probably on the lower end, I'm afraid, just, just from aesthetically. It's great. It's a good old ballpark. But, I mean, if you're talking about if you're a member of the media and that's your job and you're there all the time, I mean, other parks, there's some really, really good ones. I, I really enjoy Pittsburgh's Park a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, it had a great view, of the, great view of the city and the bridges, and it was easy to get around there. I kind of liked uh, the Rockies Park, Coors Field, a lot, although I didn't always like uh, having to spend uh, a lot of time there because of all the, uh, the runs that were scored there because of the light air. But... Uh, 
Uh, San Francisco's new park, I love that. Probably the two worst parks I've ever been to. Shea Stadium was a, was really a dump. Mm-hmm. Glad to see that go. And then when the Washington Nationals first year, they played at RFK Stadium. And, oh, my gosh, I don't think there was anything good I could say about it except that it was in Washington, and that was a lot of fun visiting <laughs> Washington. But, oh, my gosh, I mean, it was a lousy area for the press. It was a lousy, um, lousy area for the players. The players all hated it, um, the visiting locker room. The food was just no good anywhere. <laughs> I mean, the concession food was bad. The press room food was bad. The players were complaining that their food was bad in the locker room. It was like, man, oh, man, that was probably the worst experience. Jeff, we want to thank you very much for the visit. And uh, you've lived it. You've had the experience. And as you say, it's a, a once-in-a-lifetime experience to be able to roll up your sleeves and, and look at Wrigley Field and say, this is my office. <laughs> a lot of fun. We <laughs> wish you a lot of uh, continued success. All right, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure to visit Jeff Forva, who uh, for a number of years covered the Chicago Cubs beat for the Daily South Town. We will be coming back with more of Stadiums USA right here on SB Nation Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit FanEssentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit FanEssentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. Here's a bulletin just in. Technology is changing your life. Not much of a bulletin. I think we all know that one. To say the least, it's changing everything, including the stadium experience. And, of course, that's what we focus on in this program. We were very impressed when we came across a wonderful article written by David Schweig, uh, The Evolution of the Stadium Experience. He is a journalist based in New York, writes for the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Wall Street Journal, and recently did a wonderful article in Digital Trends. Fans and players compete for stardom in the stadiums of the future. David, you started by winding back to your experiences. Oh boy, I think this is exactly what we all do. And comparing and contrasting it to where we are today. Yeah. Um, when I was a kid, I used to watch a lot of New York Giants games on the TV. But once in a while, we would get tickets to one of their games at the Meadowlands, which you know most people know has been sold out for decades and decades. So it was always an exciting thing. And in the article, I just talk about how um, when I was at the live game, it was fantastic, but there were elements of it that I found kind of peculiar Mm -hmm. that the sort of uh, TV timeouts and things like that, that when you're at home, you sort of don't notice them or you can easily get up and get food or things like that. But when you're at the stadium, it's it's a bit of a strange experience. Um, it makes you kind of question what is the real event? Is it for the people in the stadium or is it just something for the people watching at home? A lot of your story is about distraction. 
and really how distraction is being sold in, in effect. It's being marketed now. It's totally different now. Why don't you walk us through that? You know, basically, I mean, and, and we can see this in kind of in many walks of, of modern life you know, in America, for that matter. But mm-hmm. certainly um, a live sporting event is to be included in, in this notion of kind of distraction above all else. They're really and anyone who's been to a live sporting event, certainly at the major professional leagues would, you know, understands this, that there really isn't a moment to kind of just digest anything or just be absorbed in in the game. And in the article I talk about, there's almost this notion that the amount of things that we're bombarded with, it's almost like a defensive tactic in a way, as if the stadiums are afraid that something terrible will happen if people are just given a moment just to kind of you know, sit still and take in the game that at any break in play, there's just immediate bombardment of stuff on the various, you know, video boards to the things that happen at halftime and the breaks to the the T-shirt cannons and everything else. It's (laughs) and it's an assault in a way. And in the conclusion of the piece, I really talk about that going to a sporting event, you know, for someone who really is just a pure sports fan where you just want to be kind of immersed in the game itself, that I think that actually becomes kind of difficult in this day and age because there's so much other kind of bells and whistles and nonsense going on that it takes away from, you know, for lack of a better word, the purity of the game itself. We are in an age of instantaneous uh, fulfillment. We need to know something. Our device can tell us that in real time. Is that what we're looking at reflected in the stadium experience here? Well, that's certainly a part of it, for sure, that there there is this notion, again, of kind of perpetual distraction that, you know, when the game starts, uh, there's a laser light show and, and this, that and the other thing that it's as if the game itself isn't enough mm-hmm. on its own. And one of the big ways that that extends beyond, you know, the things like I mentioned, like a T-shirt cannon or things like that, which are all in good fun, is the notion of connectivity and what's called, you know, sharing today. This notion that um, and stadiums are spending an enormous amount of money into building the technological infrastructure to be able to handle Um, the amount of traffic that's going on for people with their mobile devices in sharing pictures of themselves, text, video, whatever else from the event that no longer can you simply go to an event and just enjoy it for what it is, that it's almost this obligation, this expectation that you were going to, quote, share your experience of the the event with others who aren't there. And even projected onto the stadium big boards, too. That's been a relatively new development. Yeah, that's something that I found to be pretty fascinating. I don't (laughs) attend a ton of live sporting events. Um, One thing that kind of jumped out at me, um, you know, in the first half of the article, I detail kind of my experience of going to a Yankee game um, a little bit earlier this summer. And not only are you encouraged and expected to tweet and send out images of yourself and whatnot, the kind of lore to get you to do that is that if you tweet about the Yankee game, we'll put you on the video board. Possibly you have a chance. And I call it this kind of, it's amazing that this, um, sort of fleeting, micro fame, if you will, that, you know, the three seconds that you might have a chance of getting on this video board, Hmm. that that is a real, you know, strong lore for people. I just find that fascinating. There's something about us as people 
that the notion of having a lot of people looking at you, even if it's just for a few seconds and even if it's, if it's for something completely inane, like sending out a tweet of yourself, that there's something about that within us that is just incredibly desirable. You shared your experience with readers of traveling to Atlanta to take a look at the Falcons' new Mercedes-Benz Stadium currently under construction. But you had a chance to see some of the plumbing on this, and I think that was perhaps one of the most impressive parts of the article. What are we looking at here in terms of plumbing? Well, yeah, the reason I went down to Atlanta was that, you know, we often read press and perhaps you guys cover this on your show about stadiums, you know, right after they're built. It's very exciting. There'll be a flurry of coverage about look at all the stuff you get to see, you know, that's offered. And in particular, from a technological standpoint, I thought it'd be really fascinating to see, well, what goes on behind the scenes? What is involved in creating a physical structure that can handle all this stuff once it's done? No one really often steps back and thinks about how do we actually prepare for all these exciting things that happen when you're at the stadium. Mm -hmm. So getting down to the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta gave me a, a really unusual and wonderful opportunity to see just the incredible amount of work and foresight needed into creating that. Um, I think in the piece I mentioned that the arena in, in Sacramento, California is considered, you know, really on the tech vanguard and they have something like 650 miles of fiber optic cable, you know, a pretty extraordinary figure if you think about it. Hmm. But then get this, the Mercedes-Benz stadium is going to have 4,000 wow. miles of fiber optic cable. And I go into quite a bit of detail in the article, just talking about why that's necessary and what that means. Well, it's an amazing story. It's a great read. We highly recommend it for anyone who hasn't seen it. It's in Digital Trends. The story is fans and players compete for stardom in the stadiums of the future. And man, it's competition out there, as David Swig certainly points out in this article. David, we thank you very much for the visit. Do you have a Twitter handle so that folks can keep in touch with you and keep sure. up with what you're doing? Yes, I, I'm at... David Zweig on Twitter. So it's D-A-V-I-D-Z-W-E-I-G. David Zweig, journalist, author, and what a story. Sports stadiums and how technology is impacting them. Now stay tuned. Mark Medoran is going to join us. We're going to talk shop. We're going to go to the water cooler and find out what's going on with stadiums. That is next, right here on SB Nation Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. 
We're approaching election time, and it's time to talk shop, and the elections may play in some of our discussions this week. In steps Mark Madoran, president and creator of the Stadiums USA website. And we want to remind you, everyone, Stadiums USA is the nation's preeminent source for stadium information. Check it out, stadiumsusa.com. Also, you can listen to podcasts of Stadiums USA Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network and subscribe to us on iTunes and, of course, listen each week on SB Nation Radio right here. Mark, let's get into it. And our first story has to do with elections. San Diego Mayor Kevin Falconer has finally spoken in reference to plans for a downtown stadium for the Chargers, and none too early. Of course, uh, the elections are just about a month off here now. What is the mayor saying? Well, the vote on the stadium comes up next month, November 8th, and the voters will decide if the Chargers remain in San Diego or they go to L.A. and share the new stadium with the Rams in suburban L.A. San Diego Mayor Falconer is endorsing the stadium ballot measure after reaching agreement with the team on a number of financial safeguards. Mm -hmm. If the measure fails, the new working relationship with the team could actually open the door for some new stadium discussions with a new stadium solution. But here are some of the key points of the agreement that he came to with the Chargers. Number one, the city gets all revenue from non-NFL events. That's a pretty big concession, considering they'll probably have numbers of concerts and other events there over the course of a year. Hmm. Number two, the team will stay in San Diego until the initial project debt is paid. Number three, the city is reimbursed if the team leaves before construction begins. And number four, they need to replace parking at Tailgate Park, which is part of the Padres parking area. So those are the four biggest parts of the agreement. The biggest hurdle to Dean Spanos, Charter's owner, is the ballot measure itself. Opponents of the measure have questioned the reasoning behind helping an NFL team that's worth $2 billion accomplish a stadium. The new hotel tax would be able to pay about $1.15 billion in city bonds, which would be broken up as to $350 million for the stadium, $600 million for the adjoining convention center annex, which is a big part of the plan, mm-hmm. and $200 million for land. So we're going to have to wait and see what happens, but it's all up to the voters, and San Diego residents will decide whether the San Diego Chargers remain the Thunderbolts there or whether they're the Thunderbolts of L.A. Hmm. The baseball playoffs, of course, are now underway, and we have a tremendous spotlight here in Chicago on Wrigley Field, where the Cubs, with the best record in baseball, seek to put decades of uh, demons behind them. They had a bad century, actually, is what it boiled down to, Mark, echoing the words of the late Jack Brickhouse. Uh, Keep an eye out on the bullpens, though, at the friendly confides, because this is the last time we'll see them at their current location. What's the game plan for the future? Next season, the bullpens will be moved from the foul lines in their current location to a location under the stands where the fans won't be able to see them. For many Cub fans, this is a big disappointment. Strange things, as you know, happen in the bullpen. (laughs) And fans sitting in the first row frequently were engaged in discussions with Cub relievers. Relievers that are waiting to get the call, sometimes by playing cards, telling jokes, 
foul language, et cetera, et cetera. So foul line bullpens are a throwback to the early days of baseball when bullpen signs and baseball etiquette dictated much of what happened. But modern-day baseball would rather put the pitchers out of harm's way and out of the elements. Let's go a couple hundred miles south of Chicago to Champaign, Illinois, home of the Fighting Illini, and they are performing a makeover on uh, Venerable Memorial Stadium. What changes are planned there? The project will take place in the South Horseshoe at the East End uh, to be completed by 2020. Included in the project are all new football operations facilities, including locker rooms, training facilities, strength facilities. The construction will be part of a new South End Zone grandstand uh, where fans will sit very close to the action. Um, By the way, not included in the project is removal of the mythical buried bulldozer. (laughs) underneath the field at Memorial Stadium. You know that story. Uh, Yeah, a little bit about it. Well, many, many years ago, it said that as they were constructing the stadium, the center of the stadium became so muddy that a giant bulldozer that was extremely heavy could not be removed from the center of the stadium. And they decided instead of trying to spend the time and effort to do it, they would just dig around it put it deeper and then cover it up. So supposedly there is a giant bulldozer that's about 90 years old sitting at the bottom of Memorial (laughs) Stadium's field and has never been seen again. It sounds like the China syndrome champagne style of things sinks all the way down to China. Uh, Mark, uh, time to take a look back at significant stadium and ballpark events. What do you have this week in stadium history? This week in 1944, Sportsman's Park in St. Louis has the World Series all to itself. It's a war year World Series. Mm -hmm. The Cardinals and Browns, both tenants at Sportsman's Park, battle for the MLB title. It marked just the third time in World Series history in which both teams played on the same home field. The other two were both at the Polo Grounds in New York. In 1959... The Dodgers set a World Series single-game attendance record by drawing more than 92,000 fans. Of course, that was possible because the team was playing at the L.A. Coliseum, where the new Los Angeles Rams are now playing their games. (laughs) Yes. they moved from St. Louis. I remember that. Bill, this week our stadium quiz on Stadiums USA. Here is a question for you, and this is a tough one. Remember when we talked about Wrigley Field moving the bullpens underneath the bleachers? Mm Mm-hmm. Currently, three of the following ballparks still have bullpen areas located down the foul lines like Wrigley. One does not. Can you name the ballpark that does not have their bullpens located down the foul lines? A, Tropicana Field in St. Petersburg. B, the Coliseum in Oakland. C, Fenway Park in Boston. And D, AT&T Park in San Francisco. Boy, and in the case of one or two of these, they've actually changed the locations too through the years. Uh, I am going to take a guess, Mark, and I honestly don't know the answer to this. I'm going to guess Fenway Park in Boston. Excellent guess. You are correct. Oh, jeez. That was pure luck. Uh, but I do remember what, just in the back of my memory, I seem to remember seeing some guys warming up on a bullpen out in the outfield. That is correct. Fenway Park is the only stadium to have its bullpens located in the outfield of the four that we mentioned. 
The other three, Tropicana, Coliseum in Oakland, and AT&T, still have their bullpens down the line. By the way, Fenway moved their bullpens to the outfield in 1940 hmm. to the delight of Ted Williams, who saw the fences come in in right field to accommodate the new bullpens, and it gave him a home run porch that he used plenty of times over <laughs> the course of his career. Well, Mark, thank you, and have a good week. We'll see you next week. Enjoy the weekend, college football. Coming up, it's a basketball game many talk about, but very few actually witnessed. Let's take a trip to Hershey Park Arena in Hershey, Pennsylvania, the site where Wilt Chamberlain scored his record 100 points in a single game. That's next, right here on SB Nation Radio. We remember it as one of the touchstone moments of professional basketball, Wilt Chamberlain's 100-point game. But this game is shrouded in mystery because it was not played at an NBA arena. It was played in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and what a story. We're going to talk about that story with John Finger, a writer for CSNPhilly.com. He has an article currently posted regarding this. John, great work. And I think you tell the story here that so many of us uh, just can't get enough of it through all of right. these years. It's fascinating, isn't it, that yeah, way? Yeah, I mean, I I never saw him play. Like He, he predated me, so... But we heard about him. I mean, he was kind of like a like a like a cartoon figure. You know, even though Bill Russell won all the championships, Wilt was larger than life. And and, and apparently, that's the way he was in real life too. He was just just a larger than life character. But there yeah. is a linkage here between Wilt Chamberlain's incredible 100 point game and the city of Hershey. Pennsylvania, and particularly the Hershey Park Arena. John, some people may not even be aware if this arena even exists anymore. And it's what, still there. What, yeah, it's, what is today's arena like as compared to the arena that goes back to, what, the 30s? The interior-wise, it's not that different. The Hershey Bears were the last sports team to use it, and they're, they're, I guess they're affiliate of the uh, Washington Capitals. The arena, when they left probably over a decade ago, they left the arena the way it was. So, it, you know, you still have the, uh, the manual scoreboard on, on both sides of the arena. The, the seats are still banked really steep, and, and they're hard wooden seats. Um, it, you, you feel like you're going to flip over toward, you know, onto the, onto the playing surface. I've heard stories about Dave Zinkoff, the man who wrote, that famous picture of Wilt holding the sign that says 100. <laughs> Dave Zinkoff wrote that. They took him back around the 50th anniversary of Wilt's 100-point uh, uh. game, and he's like, yeah, this place looks exactly the same as it as it did when, when we were here in 1962. John, today's NBA fan who is used to seeing amazing arenas might have a hard time wrapping their heads around the idea that this game was actually played where it was. What were the circumstances winding back to 1962 that actually brought this particular game and a number of others like it to this tiny arena in Hershey, Pennsylvania. I guess you would call it barnstorming. Like they were trying to get the word out about the uh, the league, so they'd go to um, non-NBA cities and play games. So they played the Warriors. They weren't even the Sixers then. They were the Philadelphia Warriors. Mm-hmm. Played um, the Knicks and at Hershey Park Arena that night. 
they played a dozen games in Hershey that year. They, then they'd go to uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana to play games. There wasn't a team in Syracuse. They'd go to Syracuse to play games. You know, they'd just go to these, I guess, mid-markets is what you would call them now to get the word out about the game, get about the NBA, because it wasn't baseball which was, or the NFL, which were, were, were king. In fact, the Sixers were still playing games in Hershey into the mid-'70s and late-'70s. They were still playing those, not exhibition games, regular season NBA games in Hershey Park. Let's just imagine you and I that we're standing outside that arena right now, the Hershey Park Arena, and we are going to walk in there and take a look at it. What are the senses, what are the various things that we would see in there if we walked in there right now? Well, in the front door, I mean, there's a historical marker outside that says this is Hershey Park Arena, it's where the Hershey Bears and the Philadelphia Warriors and Sixers played, and this is where Wilt had his big night. And there is a small trophy case with a program from the night of the 100-point game and uh, a couple of pictures, and that's it. You know, And then the rest of it is you know, just an old arena. Kind of reminds you, if you've ever been to Fenway Park, how the... Uh, the, how tight the walkways are. It's but tighter because it's an indoor arena. And I would say that the only thing that is so close to what Hershey Park Arena is now is uh, probably the Palestra in uh, Philadelphia, where you know the Big Five play. The Palestra is uh, probably a little bigger than Hershey Park Arena too, and that only holds about nine thousand fans. John, thank you so much for the visit and continued success with CSNPhilly.com. And we heartily suggest that everybody drop by and check that out. I appreciate it. John Finger, our guest of CSN Philly. That's our program for this week. Join us again next week for Stadiums USA on Blog Talk Radio.